Well, amen. Amen. We start this new series this week. We're calling it The Power of Clarity. And what we'd like to do over the next several weeks is to really bring clarity to what Christianity is all about. We would like for you to know, for you to be able to tell someone as well. So let's just jump into it. This morning, I'd like to start by conducting a brief quiz on something that uh, I'm very into, very into. Uh, and it's the trumpets. It just happens to be a genre of brass instrument that I am deeply passionate about. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, Tom, we have never seen you with a trumpet, like ever, never. And you're right. It's true. But I might start. Like, you never know, right? Listen, it's just a sermon introduction. That's all it is. All right, so just let it go and enjoy this little quiz. Let's get started. Question number one, when do you think the trumpet was invented? Well, now, if you said 3,000 B.C., then you're right. That's when it happened. You are off to a great start on this quiz. Was trumpeting ever an Olympic sport? If you're like, yeah, yeah, I think it, I think it was, then you are correct again. You're doing awesome at this quiz. It was an Olympic sport, and get this, the emphasis was on volume. Like, there was no points for playing the tune. It was all about decibels, how loud you could get. There was actually this Greek guy who was so good, he could really blast that trumpet. In fact, he won the gold medal three times in a row. Yeah, he just blew away his competition. All right, which army perfected the use of trumpets for military purposes? And if you're like, you're probably the Roman Empire, probably the Roman army, you would be right again. And you are crushing this quiz. They actually had 43 different sounds that signified different things the commanders would want their troops to do. There was a blast for, like, getting up in the morning and a blast for going to bed at night. There was another blast that was sounded that said, charge into battle, and another blast that said, run for your life. They actually had set up trumpet training school so that everyone could go and they would learn the same sounds and they would play them the exact same way. Now, here's one for those of you who grew up playing or singing hymns. Can you think of any old hymns that contain lyrics about trumpets? And you're like, hey, yeah, I can think of one. Remember the song, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And you are correct. And you are now reaching trumpet quiz master level. Like, I can think of an old hymn that I remember singing a couple times that said this, the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And this actually came right out of a New Testament verse that talks about end times and the blast of the angelic trumpets. Like, that's how we'll know, right? One more question. What does the Bible state as the unpardonable sin when it comes to using trumpets in military battle or for military purposes? Like, what should you never, ever, ever do? Well, the answer Play an uncertain sound. Like, take a look at this verse from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 8. If the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Now, this is cool imagery. Let me just unpack it for just a minute. Like, 10,000 soldiers marching on the enemy, right? 
and they stop, and they're waiting for their commanders who are huddled up, deciding if they will move on or maybe retreat back. Finally, the, the commanders decide whether they're going to charge or retreat, and the 10,000 soldiers would turn and look at the trumpeteers and wait for them to raise the trumpet to their lips and to blow a very clear signal. The last thing you want in that situation is an uncertain sound. So the trumpeter would blast, right? And if it was an unclear sound, the, the army would be like, do we charge? Do we retreat? Is it coffee break? No, I think it's nap time. Unclear. It is far better to have a clear sound to be blown in times of war so the army knows exactly what to do because the stakes are, the stakes are really high. Today and next week, I want to sound a clear trumpet when it comes to the message of the Christian faith. I want to sound it so clear and so direct and so certain that you would know and you would actually be able to tell someone else what the true essence of Christianity is all about. It boils down to really one phrase, one phrase I want to share with you this morning and throughout this series. And one phrase I want to say, and I'd actually like you to say it as well this morning. What is the core of Christianity? The core of Christianity is being restored to right relationship with God. Listen, I know you're home and I'm here, but would you say that out loud with me wherever you're at? Say it. Being restored to a right relationship with God. Now, there are two things necessary for this, and we're going to walk through these two things over the next two weeks. So you need to come back next week because both are equally important to this salvation process. The, the two, one, God plays the entire role, and we'll talk about that this week. The other, we actually have a part to play in it. We'll talk about that next week. Here's the first part. It's God's part. It comes in just two words, substitutionary atonement. Now, don't let those words scare you. You'll all get it in just a second here. Let's go to the second word first, atonement. You get a speeding ticket, right? And you have to go to traffic court to atone for that ticket. You have to go and you have to satisfy whatever is being asked of you by the traffic court justice system. You go and you pay a fine or you do something to atone. You might pay $75. You might pay $100. But here's the thing. Once you pay it and you walk out of that room, it's done. It's over with. It's been atoned. It has been made right. The payment has been made that, get this, satisfies the demands of justice. Now, you're familiar with this remaining word, substitute. When your teacher was sick back in grade school, the school would call in a substitute, somebody to stand in the place of your teacher. Now, some of you need to atone for how you treated your substitutes back in the day. Am I right? So, for all my substitutes, would you please accept this as my apology to you right here today? But substitute, you all understand, it just means taking the place of something else. Now, put these words together and you understand what we're talking about here. And you understand, like, this is actually one of the key principles of the Christian faith, and it's a major role that God plays. 
it's one of the two components that bring this clarity to Christianity that we're talking about during this series, and specifically these two significant components that we're talking about this week and next week. This is the idea that actually separates Christianity from all other major world religions. In fact, all other major faith systems in the world, self-atoners need to atone. Like, if you do something wrong, you have to atone. This can be done in different forms, penance, rituals, pilgrimages, punishments. And many times you often wonder if you've really done enough. But listen, Christianity is different. How? Because God has arranged for someone else to pay the penalty for your wrongdoing. It's utterly unique. Listen, if you go anywhere in the triad and you just pull together a hundred people, right, and you say to them, tell me what's the essence of Christianity. Many are going to tell you something like, oh, that's when you like kind of clean up your act. You fly a little straighter or, you know, you kind of live on, you know, the straight and narrow and, and right, clean living. And if you do that, you'll probably be pretty good in life, you know, karma stuff. But in reality, it's something so different and so much more rewarding. So I'm going to ask that you indulge me for a few minutes. I'm going to take you on the fastest trip through the Bible that you've ever gone on from Genesis all the way to Revelation so that we can understand how this concept of substitutionary atonement shows up throughout God's Word and why it's the first step in being restored to a right relationship with God. So here we go, Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in this lush garden. And he says, like, man, have fun here, right? Like, have a ball here. Go name the animals. Have dominion over this whole place. Go procreate, right? And fill this place up with children. Multiply here. And he goes, look, enjoy every one of these fruits and trees that you see here. But I'm going to ask that you stay away from this one tree. I'm actually going to ask that you honor me by obeying me in this and staying clear of just this one tree. And Adam and Eve are like, got it. Perfect. Well, all, everything went good for a, a long time. And, and then you know, you know the story. They were tempted and they took some fruit of that one tree. And actually, the second that happens, instantaneously, they feel this, get this, shame and guilt. It happens, like, right away. It just pours over them. And they're like, man, we screwed up. Like, the God of the universe, the God who created us, the God who gave us this whole garden, like, we just, man, we just messed it up. Like, he only asked us to stay away from one thing, to not do one thing. And we did it. And so this guilt and this shame washes over them. And and they actually become aware of each other's guilt and shame through, as the Bible says, the viewing of their nakedness for the first time. And so they're overwhelmed with this. And then God arrives, right? And you ought to reread this in Scripture. Don't just hear what I'm telling you this morning. Open up Genesis, the first few chapters. You'll read all about this story. God shows up, and God's just like, I mean, this is great. God's like, hey, what's going on here? What's, hey, what's happening? And Adam's like, hey, listen, God, 
I, I know you're going to thought I did something wrong, but this woman, this woman that you left with me, she tempted me, and like, what am I going to do, Lord, right? And God's like, that's kind of lame, Adam, but Eve, what of it, huh? And, it, and Eve says, look, I know you thought I did something wrong, but this serpent, that's like a representation of the evil one, this serpent, yeah, this serpent tempted me, enticed me. And so they're kind of spinning this story and blaming each other and other people. And God goes to the side, and he does something absolutely remarkable. He finds an animal, and he kills it. Now, Adam and Eve, they got to be horrified. Like, death had not entered into the world yet. No animal, no person had died. And, and so they got to be a little freaked out, right? But Jesus, or excuse me, God, like he finds this animal, and get this, he actually kills the animal, and he skins this animal, and he takes the skin of the animal, and he puts it around the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Listen, their guilt and shame is covered over by the skin of this now dead animal. I can imagine Adam and Eve being like, whoa. Like something innocent had to die because of our disobedience. Go a little further. The Israelites had been captured by the Egyptians. You remember the story. And they're slaves in Egypt. And then God brings the plagues as a way to free his people. You remember, let my people go. And in the 10th plague, God says, I'm going to send an angel of death. Like your rebellion, the violence, the selfishness, the unrighteousness, uh, it's, it's judgment time. Like it's judgment time. And God says, I'm going to send this angel of death, and it's going to take the life of the, every firstborn in every household, Israelites and Egyptians alike. But he says, look, here, here's your way out. If you would go and you would kill an innocent lamb, and you would take the blood and you would actually smear it or sprinkle it on the doorpost of your house. When the angel of death comes through, the angel of death will pass over that house. No harm will come to any firstborn in that house. So the Egyptians, they're like, like we don't believe in God. Like That's Israelite God stuff. Like I'm not going to do that. But the Israelites, they knew God. And they knew from time to time that God would go in like judgment mode, and that he had to clean some stuff up. He had to shoot a shot over the bow, right? Or he, he would know that people would progressively live more careless lives. So the night comes, and the angel of death comes over, and the angel of death sees the blood on the doorpost and passes on. No child is required from that house. But for the Egyptians who blew that off, they all lost their firstborn child. And the Bible actually says that there was this sound of wailing like had never been heard before in history. I always think of that 13-year-old kid who was going out with his father to the herd, and his father's going out with a knife and, and grabs a lamb, and the, and the kid's like, what are you going to do? Like, what's going to happen here? He says, listen, I'm going to kill this lamb. And I'm going to take his blood and I'm going to smear it on the doorpost so, so like you won't be removed from me tonight. And this kid would be going like, but what did the lamb do? 
lamb's innocent. The lamb's just hanging out. It's a pretty good question, right? Listen, all throughout the Old Testament, there's this sacrificial system when people fouled up and they knew they had that they would take an innocent lamb from their herd and they would bring it to the temple and they would offer it as a sin sacrifice. Something innocent had to die. And then there was this day of atonement. Like this is the biggest day on the Israelite calendar. And, and, and this is something a little bit different. It's actually kind of like a one-two punch to drive home this idea of substitutionary atonement here. Uh, and, and actually, Jewish people today are still very much in touch and tune with what this is all about. Like one goat was sacrificed as the sin offering for what they had done to cover over their sins. But the second goat was a little different. The high priest would actually take his hand, and he, this is in front of thousands of people. I mean, this is a huge crowd. He'd take his hand, and he'd lay it on the goat. And when he, he laid his hand on the goat, he would say, I now, by the power of God, I transfer your sin. I transfer your wrongdoing. I transfer your unrighteousness or your violence or your selfishness. I transmit this on to this goat. And then another priest would actually lead the goat out. The priest would lead him out into the desert to never be seen again. Never this goat. But as they're going out, the priest would say, would call the whole audience to say, watch, look, everyone, and see that the guilt and shame of your sin is being removed by God to be remembered no more. That was the understanding. That was the power of this. Now, there's two goats used, right? But it's one point God is driving home. Sin is serious. Wrongdoing is nothing uh, to mess with. Something innocent has to die. So this is like well known throughout the Old Testament. This sacrificial system that an innocent animal had to be used to atone. Now, we get to the New Testament and Jesus starts his ministry. And one day he's by a lake and John the Baptist sees him. You remember John the Baptist. He's the most famous prophet of the day. Like everyone knows who John the Baptist is at this time. And when Jesus shows up on the scene and John sees Jesus for the first time, do you remember what he said? Like he doesn't just say it. I mean, he shouts it with excitement. He says, behold, behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Now, everyone in the crowd, like everyone, they knew the Old Testament sacrificial system. They all did. And they're like, wait, wait, John, are you, you're not talking about human sacrifice, right? Is that what you said? You're not talking about human sacrifice. Like, we have animals for that sin stuff. Like, that's how we do it. So interesting words from John when he sees Jesus proclaimed in excitement. So Jesus starts his uh, teaching ministry, and because he can do miracles and because he's, he's fabulous teacher and he's so wise, he was being deemed the Messiah very early on. In fact, those that were deeming him the Messiah early, they wanted him to kick the Romans out. They wanted him to restore the Jews to wealth and power. And Jesus like that's like, that's not why I came. 
Like, that's not the reason. In fact, he reminded them of, of John's words, like, I'm the Lamb of God. I've come to take away the sins of the world. And they're like, look, look, uh, we don't want to hear that. We, we want to see you establish a powerful earthly kingdom. But Jesus says continuously by his words and his actions, that is not why I came. Fast forward all the way up to the Last Supper. You remember this. The disciples, they're having dinner. They're like, man, we get to have supper with Jesus, you know, all together. This is awesome. But at the table, Jesus takes a loaf of bread, and he tears it in two, and he says, listen, my body is going to be ripped apart in the not-too-distant future. And then he takes a, a cup, and he pours it out. It's a cup of wine, and he pours it out, and he's saying, listen, this represents my blood that will be poured out. My blood is going to be poured out for the sins of the world to atone. Like, can you imagine the disciples? They're like, like, tell us this is not true. This is not accurate. Confusion. A few days later, he's hanging on the cross, and he is substitutionarily atoning, paying the price of everyone's sin. And do you remember at the end, before he takes his last breath, do you remember what he said? He said, it is finished. The ultimate act of substitutionary atonement has been completed. Like, no more lambs, no more goats are going to die, no human sacrifices, no more law, no more old covenant. It is completed with this work of redemption right here and right now. And everyone, everyone's sin who trusts in this work We'll get it, here's the words, paid in full. Everyone's will be paid in full. That is what Jesus is declaring on the cross. Listen, now let's, let's move forward to the book of Revelation, which says there's like this coming day of reckoning, right? Now, I always want to remind you that the death rate in the U.S., I'm not sure what it is in the rest of the nation, or rest of the world, but the death rate in the U.S. is hovering right there around 100%, which means someday, someday, you and I are probably going to die. And we're going to stand and we're going to make account for our lives. Like, that's how God set up this moral system. Now, some of you think that this is the way it's going to happen. Like, there's going to be a big black book that God opens up, and he's going to search for your name. And when he finds it, he's going to start crunching some numbers. He's going to start crunching all the good stuff. And then he's going to start crunching all the bad stuff. And when he gets all the data, he's going to hit the equal sign. And then it's going to tell him the results. And he'll be ushering some people into an afterlife with him and some into an afterlife without him. Listen, that is the good works and good deeds system that we talked through and we debunked last week. And so if you haven't yet listened to that message, I would encourage you, go back and listen to that teaching so you understand. Because, my friends, that's, what's not, that's not what's going to happen at all. It's not going to be anything like that. Please understand this. On your final day when you stand before a holy God, the question is not going to be if you sinned or not or how much you sinned or how spectacularly you sinned or how boringly you sinned. The important question is who is going to atone for your wrongdoing? Whether you had a little bit or a lot, someone 
has to satisfy the demands of justice for a holy God. Now, there's two options. You might know this. You can choose to self-atone. You can actually choose to stay separated from God throughout this earthly life, and then you can self-atone for your sins for an eternity separate and from isolation from God. That's your choice. Now, if you take that choice, the Bible says something, something's going to happen five minutes after you make that decision about the afterlife. It's a word that we, we don't use so much sometimes, but it's the word gnashing your teeth. Gnashing your teeth. Sounds like a dental thing, right? Let, let me just demonstrate so you understand what gnashing your teeth is. It's when we do something or something happens and we go, argh, argh. It's like when, when I drive to the church and I realize halfway that I have forgotten something that I need here at the church. And as I'm driving, I'm like, argh. or I'm headed back home that same day, right? And I realized there was something I needed to take home, and I left it at the church. And that's what the Bible says. Like, there is this gnashing of teeth when we choose to self-atone for an eternity for our own wrongdoings. It's a decision you're going to regret. And this is why God has gone to such lengths to try to convince human beings to take the other plan. Don't self-atone. Take the substitutionary atonement plan. Take a look at what 2 Peter verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 9 says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting, get this, anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Like God is, is waiting, longing. Translation? Self-atoners break God's heart. The disciple John wrote in one of his books of the New Testament, and he's quoting Jesus here when he says this. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone, anyone, anyone hears my voice and will open the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Listen, Jesus stands at the door of your life, and he knocks patiently, just patiently. Please don't self-atone, he says. Like, it's a bad, bad plan. You'll regret it forever. I paid the price for you. I am the substitutionary atoner. I'm knocking on the door. Would you open the door? Like, could we talk about what a relationship with me could bring to your life and do for you? Because I paid the price. And I think I have something to offer you for this life. We're going to talk about that next week. And life eternal. Listen, my name got written in the book of life at a beach camp my church was offering back in my teen years. Now, listen, you got to know, I don't necessarily believe that salvation is as simple as get emotionally charged up at youth camp, saying a prayer, and then moving on the next morning like nothing ever really happened. I think there's much more to salvation than that. Next Sunday, we're actually going to talk about this so that we understand this concept. But listen, that was the beginning of faith for me, and I've never come off it. I remember a significant New Testament verse that was shared at that beach retreat. Now, 
I knew God had been drawing me. He had been drawing me for a while. I was starting to understand who God was. And I was starting to kind of fall in love with this idea of him pursuing me. But this verse actually hit me in a way that weekend that helped me make a believe on Jesus decision. It's found in Titus chapter 3. He he saved us, not because of righteous things that we've done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The key word there is he saved us. That's the key. That Jesus did this. That was transformational for me that weekend in my life. Now, that wasn't like the fullness of my life in God. In fact, I was such a baby Christian that I didn't really understand all of who God was and what he was calling me to and what he wanted to transform me into. But everything changed that weekend. So I want to ask you a question today. Have you made a decision to self-atone? Is that the decision you've been making up to now in your life? keeping yourself separate from God, choosing to self-atone, or to accept Jesus' gift of atonement. To say, Jesus, he was a substitutionary atoner, and I want to receive that for my life. I I could never self-atone. I want to accept Jesus' gift of atonement. Let me just recap in our closing minutes the ABCs of becoming a Christian that we talked about last week. We started with A, and it really just means admit that you have a problem. And this is like admit that there is an issue, remit, or admit that there's a sin issue, admit that there's like a separation, a, a conflict in my relationship with God, admit that I've been seeking fulfillment in myself or in material things or in things outside of God. We just admit we have a problem. And then we believe that Jesus is the answer. We believe Jesus is the answer for this sin issue. That's what we've been talking about this morning. He is the substitutionary atoner for that sin issue. We believe that he is the answer to the fullness of life. We're going to talk about that more next week. And the answer to discovering our purpose in life as well. We'll talk about that later in this series. And then finally, commit your life to following Jesus. Commit to following him. Like this morning you say, I'm going to decide... I want to follow Jesus. Like as much as I understand who Jesus is and what God is all about, I am going to choose to follow that. And I'm going to start learning what does that mean? What does that look like? And learn more about Jesus. Now, I'd like to lead you in a prayer this morning. And this prayer is an opportunity for you to mark this as a beginning day when you decided to follow Jesus. When you decided on God's plan and path of salvation for your life. And if you're ready today, as we're praying, I'll lead you through the words. You just simply heartfelt pray these yourself to God. So let's pray. Father, this morning, Father, I just believe there is someone who's listening this morning that has been on a self-atonement plan. That's how they've been tracking up till now. And this morning, they understand they never could really fulfill that. And this morning, Lord, is the opportunity for them to say uh, that 
I want to lean on Jesus' substitutionary atonement. I want to lean on Jesus and the fullness of life he has to offer. Listen, if that's you this morning, you can simply mark this moment by saying a a prayer. Just, Just follow somewhat the words that I say. God, I admit there's a problem. I admit there's a problem. And I admit that you are the answer to the problem in my life. You are the answer to the sin problem. Lord, you're the answer to the fullness of life problem. And so this morning, Lord, I believe in you. And this morning, I'm going to commit to following Jesus as much as I understand who Jesus is. And I'm going to learn more. As much as I understand who God is, I am going to follow that and commit my life in that direction. I pray this, Lord, to you, heartfelt. And the Bible says if you did that, if you just prayed a prayer like that, you began this journey of salvation today. And we give God praise for that. Lord, I know there's many others who are making a recommitment to you is what they need to do right here and right now. They've gotten away from this. In fact, some of them have gotten away from this, and they've bought into the good works plan. Father, this morning, would you return them, as the Bible says, to their first love, to the love of Christ, and renew their relationship right here, right now. If you need to make that commitment, do it as we're praying, a recommitment to the Lord. Father, we thank you for every commitment that's made, for every word that's been spoken this morning that touches our heart. We give you praise in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, two things I'd like you to do this morning. If you made a commitment to follow Jesus, a first-time commitment to actually follow Jesus, I want you to actually text this number. Text yes to Jesus. And if you would just text that yes to Jesus, to 336-361-1717. We want to help you get started on your spiritual journey. So just text this to us. Get out your phone right now and let us know that you made a commitment to follow Jesus. Now, when you get that, we're going to actually follow up and help you on what your beginning steps for a life in Christ look like. So text that. We'd love to connect with you. Hey, if anything's going on in your life as well, uh, especially as it has to do with with this pandemic we've been walking through, we want to know. We want to be able to help. So if you would be sure to send an email to office at windoverhills.org and let us know how we can help and how we can be a blessing to your life. If you do that this week. Now, tomorrow, uh, by about noon, you're going to receive a text that says, how can we pray for you? Submit your prayer request. Just hit that link and send in your prayer request, and we will start praying for whatever you need prayer on. Or if there's somebody in your life you would like us to pray for, please send that along. But we ask this, you pray as well. Send it to us, we'll pray, but you pray along with us as well this week. Well, the Lord bless you. I hope you have a great Sunday rest of the day. Enjoy your family or whatever you might be doing today. Be sure to come back next week and join us as we continue this series. And we're going to talk about the second part of these two components, substitutionary atonement. And the second is this, life in Christ. Now, substitutionary atonement in Christ and life in Christ are not 
the same thing. So come back next week and understand where you go from now with what you've made this commitment to in your life to follow Christ. The Lord bless you. Grace and peace to you. We'll see you next Sunday.